Good morning, Summit Church, and welcome to all of our campuses across the Triangle. If you have a Bible this weekend, I'd love for you to take it out and uh, open it to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 in your Bible. If you have one, turn it on or open it up or look around with somebody there next to you. Um, as you are turning there, I'll tell you that I've been thinking a lot this week about moments which we have uh, in which we can define, uh, which we have the opportunity to define ourselves, to determine the values that we want to live by, the legacy that we want to leave. Uh, we are watching this happen right now in front of us with two presidents, one who is on his way out, who is trying to shore up his legacy, the other on his way in determining um, what values are going to shape his administration. You know, when you get elected president, your life gets determined by what you do in those four to eight years. Your life, of course, is much longer than those four to eight years, but what people remember about you is shaped by what you do during that time. Uh, I share that really for two reasons. One, um, of course, I want to remind you to pray for our president. Even when you do not agree with their policies, we are commanded to honor them and to pray for them, and we want to do that. Um, second, I want you to have a similar moment to what these guys are going through. I want you to have that moment today. Now, I know that you probably haven't been elected president of anything in the last week, and likely you're not putting together an administration or something like that, but there are key moments in your life where you decide what's going to define the rest of your life, what values and what principles are going to shape the way that you live. Author, philosopher Beverly Donofrio says, she says, one day can make your life, one day can ruin your life. When you look back over your life, you're probably going to realize that it was four or five days on which you made major decisions and set major trajectories that ultimately shaped your entire life. Four or five major times of decision and trajectory. Well, see, in, so, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is giving us a farewell speech in which he summarizes what I think are the six values that Paul has built his life around. He is saying goodbye to the church leaders in Ephesus where he spent the last three years. As far as he knows, he's never going to see any of these guys again. He is headed from here to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem on to Rome where Paul assumes he's going to be martyred. This is his farewell speech to them. Here's the question. If you were making a farewell speech, if you were addressing the people that you had known and loved for most of your life and you had one chance to make a speech to them, what values would you include in it? What would be in that? I used to lead a Bible study here called Men's Fraternity. And one of the things that we would do at some point in the Bible study is that people would draw out a tombstone and they would write the, the five or six different things they would want written on their tombstone, what they wanted to be remembered by. And I always challenge, I give these guys examples of, you know, famous last words of people. You got Nathan Hale, you know, the great American patriot who was like, you know, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country or a lot of country boys from Person County. Y'all watch this. I'm like, you know, what, what, what is it that wants to, to shape? How do you want to define your life? Well, these are the six things that Paul would want written on his tombstone. These are the six things Paul wants them to remember. By the way, a little Bible trivia for you. This is the only extended speech in the book of Acts that's actually made to other Christians. Every other sermon, every other speech in Acts is always made to unbelievers. And so there's, there's a reason this one's included, and I think it's because this gives you kind of the, the crucial components that the Holy Spirit wants every believer to live their life around. So I'm kind of going to, I'm asking you the question, and then I'm going to give you the answer. These are the six values I think you should live your life according to, and if you're going to write your funeral speech, this is how essentially I think that you should write it, okay? Acts chapter 20, let's, uh, let's begin in verse 20 here, and I'll give you the first of these six statements. Um, verse 1, 
excuse me, verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Here is number one value for Paul. I made sure that my generation, I made sure that my community knew the truth. Twice in this speech, Paul says to them, I did my duty. I delivered the message that God gave me to give to you. I told you everything that I was supposed to tell you. You see, Paul saw himself primarily as the bearer of a message. As a messenger, he was not responsible for whether people liked his message. He was only responsible for whether or not they heard it clearly. And for Paul, this was very serious business, which is why he says in verse 26, I am innocent of the blood of all. Now, that's kind of dramatic language, isn't it? Why would Paul talk like that? It's because Paul saw his message as a matter of life and death. Paul is likely here thinking about a passage in the Old Testament, I think he's probably quoting it, where the prophet Ezekiel said it this way, Ezekiel 33, 8, God speaking through Ezekiel, when I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways. That wicked person will die for their sin. Right? They're doing wickedly. That's why they're going to die. But, 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 I will hold you accountable for their blood. They're going to die because of their iniquity, but I'm actually going to hold you responsible for it. Why? Because I had a message to give to them, and you never gave it to them. Yeah, I, I've described it to you before. Like, you know, I, uh, I was watching a talk show years ago where there was a, there was a guy um, who was on there who had saved all these people's lives after an earthquake out in California. W what happened was um, he was driving along about 3 a.m. in the morning outside of Los Angeles. Um, one of the earthquakes uh, takes place out there, and uh, he thinks, not, you know, everything's fine, but he, he turns to go across a bridge, one of these bridges spanning the, um, the bay or something like that. And as he's driving across the, um, the bridge, he notices the taillights of the car in front of him just disappear. So he slows his car down, curious as to what happened, and realizes that, that the middle section, one of the sections of the bridge, has dropped out, and what he's just seen is the taillights of the car disappear off the side and plunge down to the, you know, the death of everyone in the car. And so the guy, I mean, he panics because this is a bridge. It's late at night, but there's people still coming across, you know, cars coming across the bridge. So you know, he, he stands there where his car's parked. He starts to wave his arms to get people to, to stop. Now, question for you. You're driving along at 3, 3 a.m. in the morning outside of Los Angeles, and there's some dude out there on the side of the road waving his arms. You going to stop? No. He says, this guy watched, uh, this guy said, I watched this four different cars went by me at 65, 70 miles an hour plunging to their death. He said, I saw a, a bus begin to come across the bridge. He said, and I made up my mind that if that bus was going to go over that bridge, then it was going to have to take me with it. He said, and so I stood right there in the middle of the road. He said, and that bus started to flash its lights and honk its horn to get me to move. And I wouldn't move. I just had my shirt, my shirt off, um, my, my jacket, I was waving it. And he said, the guy finally stopped and he gets out and he's, he's cussing at me. And um, he said, but I showed him like this section of the bridge has dropped out. And the bus driver, you know, parks the, the, the bus in a way that keeps other people from dropping off the edge of the, um, the bridge. Um, as I'm watching this, the question that I, you know, ask myself is if I had been the first one to notice that, um, what would I have done, right? Well, I think I would have done the same thing, right? I mean, would I have cared that everybody thought I was an idiot and I was a zealot and that I was a little crate? No, because I knew something they didn't know and I'm responsible to tell them. Um, I'm responsible if I see something they don't see. And what Paul said is, God has given me a message. And that message, it starts with bad news. The bad news is you and I are condemned because of our sin. 
Because we have lived in rebellion against God, God's rightful anger and his wrath is on top of us and we are alienated from God and things are not right in our life and there's a missing piece and and there's all kinds of things going wrong because we're under the wrath of God. But then it's good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, um, that Jesus would come and live the life that we were supposed to live, a sinless life, then die the death that we were condemned to die in our place, a sinner's death, so that if we would receive him as our savior, he would forgive our sins and change our life. The gospel is that all those who are humble enough to admit they need a savior and to call out on Jesus for salvation will be saved. I'm not responsible for how you respond to that message. I am responsible for making sure that you have heard it and that you understand it clearly. Here's your question. Does your community, does your generation know the truth? Have you made it clear to them? Is everyone in your life, is everyone in, Paul's not talking about the whole world here. He's talking about the people to whom God has sent him. Does your family, does your school, does your community, did they know the truth? Have they felt its weightiness? Verse 31, Paul tells them, for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Can people in your life say that, that they felt the weightiness? A couple weeks ago I told you the story of that girl that I was sharing Christ with who um, you know, said to me, she said, uh, she said, do you really believe this? Because if I believed what you say you believe, I would go on my hands and knees to everybody that I knew. And I would say, you've got to listen to me because of what the Bible says. Have they felt its weightiness from you? Have they sensed how real it is? And that really is kind of the question for us, isn't it? Do we really actually believe it? Have you ever asked yourself that? Do you really actually believe this message? Do you believe that heaven and hell are real? Sometimes people say to me, they're like, you're an educated person. Do you really believe in a hell? My response is always, well, Jesus believed in it. Jesus believed in it. He taught more about often about it than he did heaven. And they're like, oh, well, like with literal flames and fire and smoke. Listen, the Bible uses a lot of metaphor, and I do not claim to know everything. But I'll tell you, even if those things are symbols, whatever they are pointing to is a terrible reality. Revelation 21.8 calls hell the fiery abyss of burning sulfur where there is weeping and darkness and gnashing of teeth and the smoke of their torment of sins forever. If those are just symbols, what are they symbols for? It's not a beach vacation or a winter retreat. It's a terrible reality. And some of the church, listen, I'll say this as clear as I can. I believe it is morally wrong to know that and to claim to believe it and to live in complacency. I think it demands something of us. It ought to change how we look at our stuff. In, uh, in Long Beach, California, you can visit a ship that has been turned now into a museum. It was originally launched in the early 20th century as the Queen Mary, the ultimate luxury cruise liner for rich people with every possible convenience. In World War II, however, it was commandeered to carry troops back and forth across the Atlantic. You can go onto the ship now and see examples of how the ship was set up in both, in both settings. Um, when it's you know, set up to be a luxury liner, it, it housed about 3,000. When it was set up to go into World War II and to carry these troops back and forth, it had housed 15,000. So rooms that used to sleep one couple would now sleep 16 soldiers. And the point you see right played out in front of you is that wartime and peacetime demand different things. The same thing is true for us. Wartime and peacetime ought to demand different things. This is not simply trying to recruit people into a religious movement. We think this is a life or death message. Y'all, and as best we can, this mentality forms our approach as a church. We are not trying to build the Queen Mary luxury liner for Christians. 
We think we've been commissioned to, to build a rescue station for lost people. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be trashy. Um, we, we, we want it to be a warm, inviting, well-kept environment done excellently for the glory of God. But everything we do, we do so with the understanding that our resources were not given to us to create a cruise liner with luxuries for Christians. It was given to us to create a rescue station for the broken. One of the phrases you'll, use around, well, you'll hear us use around here is the, the phrase resourceful excellence, which means we do it excellently for the glory of God, but we do it with the knowledge that resources were given to us not to build a big, beautiful monument to Jesus, but to create platforms on which we can preach the gospel and make disciples. I believe this principle should also shape your approach to life. As I've often told you, there is nothing wrong with you enjoying God's blessings. There is something, however, morally wrong with you putting your head in the sand and pretending the world is not lost. The old Christian singer, Keith Green, a um, a converted hippie who died in the early 80s, used to say, "Um, this generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls all over the world. The only chance that our generation has to hear the gospel is going to be the generation of believers that are alive right now, and that demands something of us. That is why, church, without apology, we do things like multiply. Because we understand that we are not commissioned to create a comfortable place for everybody, that we have a commission that demands something of our lives. And I want to be able to say, I'm innocent of the blood of everybody, and I preach to my community and my generation with the best that I had to offer, and I didn't leave anything behind. Paul says, number two, I directed people's attention toward Jesus, not toward me. Notice verse 19, what Paul says, I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. Now, that's not typically how great leaders describe themselves, is it? Leaders like to talk about their victories. They want to talk about their accomplishments, their strengths. In fact, that word humility right there in verse 19, um, that word is a word in Greek that was usually used as an insult. It meant low, defeated, weak. Yet in the Bible, it's used 200 different times, and it's almost presented not as an insult, but as a virtue. Now, why? Why would Paul take a word that was normally intended as an insult and then, and then turn it into a virtue? Here's why. It's, it, it, it's the counter-cultural gospel message. Christian ministry at its core is not about extraordinary men and women of great power that you should emulate. At its core, Christianity is about a great Savior who can save and then use the weakest and most broken and most guilty of sinners. Paul does not want to leave these people with an example to admire. He wants to leave them with a Savior to trust in. And weaknesses and trials and tears are how God demonstrates the sufficiency of that Savior. The gospel is not about how awesome I am or how awesome you can be. The Bible is, excuse me, the gospel is about how awesome Jesus is. Tim Keller says, a humble and weak person will show a crucified Savior better to a listener than a polished, pulled-together expert, because that's how it happened for us, right? We weren't saved because we pulled ourselves together. If you ever hear somebody give their testimony how they came to Christ, and it's all about how they pulled themselves together, said person does not understand the gospel. The gospel is not how you discovered your inner awesome child, and suddenly, no, it's the gospel is about how you discovered that you were a sinner with no hope, and then calling on the one who was pulled apart for you. And so we can demonstrate that better through weakness and trials and tears than we can through victories and accomplishments. I will just go ahead and tell you as your pastor, as your pastor, I want your attention to be on Jesus, not on me. I don't want to posture myself up here as a man who has it all together for a couple of reasons. One, it's not true. I'm afraid you'll talk to Veronica and she'll show you that I'm nothing but a lying hypocrite if I do that. Um, B, I want to show you, I want to show you, I really feel like the best thing I can do for you is show you that I'm a recovering sinner like you are so that you can learn to hope in Jesus like I have. I really feel like what you most need is not an impressive example to emulate, but an all-sufficient Savior to hope in. 
This kind of forms my philosophy as a parent. I want to help my kids see that I'm a sinner like they are. My kids already think that I'm Superman. I don't have to like tell them that. They think that I don't have to brag about it. But when I admit my sin in front of them, maybe it's my sin toward their mother. Maybe it's my sin toward them. And I ask for their forgiveness and prayer. Dads, do you do that with your kids? I do. Here's the reason. I want them to learn that daddy's a safe sinner too. So that they can learn to hope in Jesus in their insecurities and failings, which I know they're going to grow up with. I don't want them to grow up trying to live up to a model like Pharisees. I want them to grow up hoping in a Savior like Christians. And it's confession of sin. It's weakness. It's trial. It's tears that demonstrate to us the sufficiency of the Savior. This is also, by the way, I'll mention this before we move on. It's the heart behind sacrifice. Sacrificial generosity is deliberately divesting yourself of resources that you could use to strengthen yourself so that you can use them to redirect people's attention toward Jesus. When you give sacrificially, you're saying, my life is not about me. When you give sacrificially, you're saying, my talent, my time, my resources, my treasure, all of it, none of it was given to me for me. And so I'm going to redirect the use of my resources away from personal, personal enrichment, and I'm going to use it to direct people's attention toward him. I'm voluntarily putting myself through tears and trials so people can see Jesus. Paul said, number three, I invested deeply in God's community, the church. I invested deeply in God's community, the church. In verse 28, Paul, talking to the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church, he says, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, watch this, which he purchased with his own blood. The other day I was at a, um, a, a private school and I, I learned that the, a, a multi-million dollar grant had been given to um, get this private school going. And I remember thinking, wow, somebody really believes in the vision of this school and really wants this, um, this school to succeed. Um, that is true for lots of institutions. There is one institution in which there has been made an investment that is like no other, and that is the investment that God made in the church. Jesus Christ shed his blood for the church. He purchased it with his blood. And Paul says, if Jesus Christ shed his blood for the church, I'm going to give my life to the church. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I understand your role is not the same as the Apostle Paul's. Your calling to the church is not the same as mine. I've been called to pastor and lead the church. But I will tell you without any question or hesitation that the church, if Jesus poured out his blood for the church, the church ought to be the center of your life. The church, Paul tells us, is Christ's body. It is the means by which Jesus does his work on earth, which means if you separate yourself from the body, you separate yourself from Jesus. It's a strong analogy. The way I've described it is like this. Um, Think of a body, right? Jesus is the mind. That's what Paul says. He's the mind. When my mind wants to do something in the world, my mind, I haven't yet learned the power of being able to send out magic waves from my mind to just make things happen. I've tried but I can't move objects by with brain waves. If I want you to know something, I, I can't just look at you and like, you know, beam it into your mind. Uh, again, I've tried, it just doesn't work. I, I tell my mouth, like say this to that person and my mouth will communicate what my mind wants you to know. Um, if I've told you, if my, uh, if my left elbow itches, I, I, you know, I don't have the ability to send out a, like a, you know, a magic thing that just takes care of the itch. What I do is I send the message over here to the right fingers on my right hand and I say, um, hey, your brother left elbow really itches so you could take care of that. And he goes and he handles it. Right? That analogy, Paul says, is how God works in the world. When God wants to work in your life, hey, newsflash, this is going to really mess some of you up. Rarely does he just answer with a zap from heaven. That's what you want. Oh, just a zap it down. And God's like, that's not the way I work. It's a body. Which means if I got something to say to you, I probably won't say it to you whispering in your heart. I'll probably use somebody in the church to do it. Which means that when you cut yourself off from my body, you cut yourself off from me. 
So if you're not really connected to the church and you're sitting on the sidelines and complaining I'm not working in your life, stop complaining and do what I said, and then I'll start working on your life the way that I told you I would work. He says, it's Christ's body, um, I'm, so I'm going to be connected to it. He says, it's Christ's bride, Christ's bride, and which means that if Jesus loves the church like his bride, then i got to be committed to it. Because remember I told you a couple weeks ago, you can't love somebody and hate the bride. You can't be like, J.D., we think you're awesome, we think you're cool, why don't you come over to our house, but we hate that Veronica. You better leave her at home. You and I are going to have problems. You can't love me and hate my bride. You can't love Jesus and hate his bride. If Jesus died for the church, you should be deeply devoted to it. I know it's not perfect. <laughs> Jesus died for it. That's how I know it's not perfect. The church is so screwed up that Jesus had to die for it. So you don't have something that you know about the church that Jesus doesn't know. And so if Jesus died for the church, we should be deeply committed to it and very connected into it, not just a casual attender on the weekend, but involved and invested. At our heart of hearts, this is why we do things like multiply, because we want to see people get out of seeing church as a religious event they attend on the weekend, a more a body that they belong to and a part of a bride that they have given themselves to. Y'all listen, I know this political season has shaken a lot of us. To be really honest with you, and to be quite candid, many of us are really discouraged. I, I'm in that category, if not lost faith in our government altogether. And I'll just tell you, I think in the big picture, that might be good, because ultimate hope and ultimate salvation, we know, has never really been found in politics anyway, even though a lot of us kind of get in that, that habit, and that's why we put so much emotional investment in an election, because we tend to think that there's where solution is found. I would tell you more than ever, this is the time for the church to rise up because we're the only ones who can offer real hope and real salvation. We're the only ones who can heal deep wounds and demonstrate true unity across racial and cultural lines. That's why I'm really grateful we're in this time of multiply because this is the time for the church to rise up in the triangle. As our confidence in politics falters, this is a time for us to focus on what we know God has given us as a mission. Y'all, based on what I read in Scripture, let me tell you, what the triangle looks like for our kids if Jesus doesn't come back, and what it's going to look like for our grandkids, and what the triangle is going to look like for future generations of college students and business people and, and immigrants and refugees, it's got a lot less to do with who finally ends up in the governor's mansion or who finally ends up, or who ends up in the White House, and it's got more to do with what we do in the coming days at the Summit Church. God has a body. God has a body, and that is the locus, the center point of what he does on earth. And if you and I understand that, like Paul, we'll figure out our role in it, and we'll be deeply committed to it. Number four, Paul says, I've been faithful to do all that Jesus told me to do. I've been faithful to do all that Jesus told me to do. Look at verse 24. Paul said, I don't count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus I showed you this a few weeks ago in another passage, but Paul was very personal about his ministry assignment. My course, the ministry I received. Paul felt like he had been given a personal assignment from God. God does not give the same assignment to everybody. But listen to me, follower of Jesus, listen to me. God has given you a particular assignment in the mission of God and the body of Christ. And at the end of the day, you're going to answer to him for what you did with what he gave you. The point is not, you know, you don't really control what assignments you get. The point is, are you faithful with what you've been assigned? A lot of us are really focused on success and failure and how big of an impact we're going to make. Paul said, that's irrelevant because you're just a servant. In fact, here's how he said it in 1 Corinthians 4 too. Moreover, it is or all that is required of stewards is that they be found faithful. A steward was a household servant. 
A steward was not responsible to provide for the house, wasn't responsible to design the house, wasn't responsible to make big decisions for the house. A steward, a servant, was simply responsible to do what the master of the house had commanded that servant to do. You are not going to be responsible for the role that you were assigned. You are going to answer to Jesus for whether or not you played out the role that he had given you to play. Success and failure and impact are master words. Faithfulness is the concern of stewards. And here's what we find in Scripture that Paul seemed to understand is that God uses ordinary acts of faithfulness to accomplish his most extraordinary things on earth. I challenge you, go through the Bible and look at where God does something amazing. More often than not, it's just an ordinary believer in an ordinary act of obedience. And God just delights in taking the five loaves and two fish, a little boy sharing his lunch or giving his lunch when Jesus asked it. And God says, that's what I'm going to use to feed the multitude. And every once in a while, every once in a while, y'all, we get a glimpse of how God does that. I think God withholds most of them from us, but every once in a while, just to keep us in the game, he'll just give us a little taste of it um, to see how he'll use one of these acts in, in, in something extraordinary. I uh, had one of these personally um, uh, happen recently. Was, um, a couple years ago, I got a letter from a guy that I haven't talked to since I was in college. Um, this guy uh, I met in college, uh, he was in the dorm, uh, the same dorm I was, not a believer. Um, I, I met him, I gave him a Bible. And I said, let's read it together. We read the Bible together for about 10 days. About four or five times over there, we're doing that. I really thought he was coming along. The gospel was really, seemed to be taking root in his heart. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he showed up and said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do it because I don't believe it. Um, he, and he, I found out he'd, he'd met this girl and they started to sleep together and he knew he couldn't you know, pursue both. And he just said, I just, I, I just don't want to talk about this anymore. And for the next two years of college, I didn't talk to him, I think a single time. He totally cut off our relationship. All right, so um, let's see. So how many years after, how many years I've been out of college? Five years later, um, I, got, um, I, got, uh, I, I got a letter from this guy uh, just a couple of years ago. And he said, hey, you probably don't remember me. And he tells me the story. I remember exactly who he is because I, <laughs> I was actually kind of hurt by it. Um, he, uh, he, said, he said, well, I want you to tell me. I want to tell you. He said a couple of years after college was over, he said, I found that Bible. I picked it back up and I started to read it. He said, um, I really got engaged in it again. And he said, I went to a church where um, I learned more about Jesus. And he said, I became a Christian. Um, and he said, I want you to know that the first Bible ever put in my hands was by you and you started a process. And I just wanted to say thank you. He said, what's even more is I got so into, into it. He said, I quit my job. I went to seminary and now I'm pastoring a, a church myself. And I just thought I'd let you know that back all those years ago, you handed me a Bible and that made all the difference. Now I'm like, okay, what is heaven going to be like? What's heaven going to be like when all these little things that you and I did that we never saw the result of? Maybe it was just praying for somebody when God put them on your heart. Maybe it was making a, a, a financial sacrifice. Maybe it was telling somebody about Jesus, leaving the waiter or waitress a big tip and saying, Jesus loves you. Maybe it's just faithfully parenting your child. And all of a sudden, God begins to pull back the curtain and say, every act of faithfulness I used in my plan, not a cup of cold water was wasted in my name. We know that God holds us responsible to be faithful, and he uses ordinary faithfulness to do extraordinary things. Where has he called you to be faithful? Here's number five. Paul says, I finished strong. I finished strong. Again, verse 23 and 24, Paul in verse 23 is going to explain all these bad things are going to happen to him. It's not encouraging. I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be stoned, and then people are going to hate me. And then he says, verse 24, none of these things move me. None of these things move me. If only I may finish 
my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. I want to finish. In another place, Paul is going to say, you know, if you're racing somebody, it doesn't matter how well you start the race. It matters why you finish the race. A lot of people start well in the Christian life. You know, this breaks my heart because I see it happen so many times in our church. They just don't persevere on to the finish. They're like the, the, the one-hit Christian wonders, the Mark Ronson or Carly Rae Jepsen of Christians, or Millie Vanilli, for those of you whom the last time you were current with pop culture was the 1990s, all right? Um, there's one-hit Christian wonders. And it really breaks my heart because I, it's a, it come, they, they, they come, they get super excited, they join a small group, they usually sit in one of the first five rows here, no offense to y'all, but um, they sit there in the first five rows, make sure I see them every week. Their hands are up in worship, and they're just like super Christian. And then it just fades away and it fizzles out. I, I've noticed it usually happens for one of a handful of reasons. Sometimes it's just the pain of obedience. M- making the decision felt awesome, didn't it? Oh, so good. Remember, it's just like you cry, and it's so cathartic, and my life is awesome. And uh, I remember when I made like one of these, you know, one of the moments where I made this big decision that I was going to give it all to Jesus. It was, um, it was with a bunch of college students. Um, it was in an outdoor service. They had a big bonfire built. The speaker got up. We sang a bunch of songs, made everybody feel emotional, and then giving us all a stick. And we're supposed to walk forward at the end and throw our stick in the fire to show that we're giving everything for Jesus. That, it felt awesome. I was with a bunch of college students and our arms around each other and we're throwing sticks in the fire and we're singing, yeah, I've decided to follow Jesus and kumbaya and, you know, whatever. And, and it just, it was, it was a magical evening. And then we went out to pizza afterwards and I'm like, that was an awesome time. What was not awesome was when I actually had to live out what that commitment symbolized. When you're giving your life away and saying, I'm just going to, that, that doesn't feel awesome. I'll just go ahead and tell you. And Paul called it this in Romans 12.1. Paul said, I, I'm a living sacrifice. You ever think about the, an oxymoron, what that, an oxymoron, living, sacrifices are supposed to be dead. And it's a good thing sacrifices are dead because when the flame starts to burn, the sacrifice is dead and the sacrifice doesn't move. The dilemma of a living sacrifice is that the sacrifice wants to keep getting up off the altar. If I'm a living sacrifice, then when the flame gets hot, the sacrifice gets up and walks away. Paul said, I've got to live out this sacrifice. It's not in a moment of an emotional commitment that feels awesome. It is daily living out, dying to myself and giving myself away. And sometimes people just aren't ready for that. They like the emotional catharsis. They don't, uh, they're not ready to, to, to follow Jesus. For others, it's just that they never really considered the cost. I mean, they love what Jesus had to offer. Like, are you kidding me? I mean, get Jesus on my side and he takes me to heaven and he's with me to help me in my problems. Yes, please. But what inevitably happens, I've told you, is that at some point, at some point, obedience to Jesus is going to take you 180 degrees opposite of where you want to go. And in that moment, you're going to have to decide how valuable is Jesus to me. Because see, what you wanted is you wanted Jesus and comfort. And you thought Jesus would actually help you get more comfortable. You wanted Jesus and your viewpoint on a particular thing. Jesus and this relationship. Jesus and your hopes of what your life would be. And at some point, you're going to have to choose when it's not Jesus and those things, it's Jesus or those things. You're going to have to choose which is more valuable to you. Sometimes people give up just from fatigue. They just don't see the payoff for all their sacrifice. Like, I'm not seeing the fruit. I don't feel the multiplication. Paul felt like that. In fact, you know, for being a hand-chosen instrument preacher of God, Paul got some weird reactions to his sermons. I mean, often his sermons ended with people trying to stone him. It, uh, it, one time it ended with a guy getting so bored in his sermon that he fell asleep in a windowsill, dropped three stories, and died. 
And I've had a lot of weird reactions to my sermons. I've never had that happen. Fall asleep, yes. Fall off your chair and die, no, not yet. And Paul said, yeah, I know what it's like to labor and not see results. I know what it's like to follow Jesus and experience pain and suffering. But none of that stuff moves me. What does move me is when I look up the track and I see the one standing at the end, and I see the Lord Jesus, and I see that at some point I'm going to stand face to face with him. I want to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what moves me, not all these other things. In another place, he tells a group of really tired Christians, 1 Corinthians 15, really, they're tired. They're tired of the sacrifice. They're tired of the fruitlessness. They're tired of the suffering. He says to them, he says, you really got to decide in your heart of hearts, you got to decide if you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He said, because if Jesus, he said, first of all, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he said, first of all, we apostles are liars. We're not good religious teachers. We're not nice men. We're a bunch of phonies and frauds. Secondly, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, you're still in your sins. Because the resurrection was the proof that God had accepted the sacrifice of Jesus and he didn't rise from the dead, then you're really no better off than being saved was just an illusion. He said, thirdly, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all the people that have followed God throughout history, Abraham and Moses, they all wasted their lives and they're no better off than if they hadn't. He said, lastly, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all these sacrifices we're making, they're absolutely worthless and it's, it's useless. We are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's all wasted, but... If he did rise from the dead, then that changes everything. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then he really is sovereign over everything. Not a cup of cold water is going to be wasted in his name, and he's going to turn all your death and suffering into resurrection. So what you really got to decide, he tells them, is you got to decide whether or not you actually believe that. Paul says, as for me, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I actually believe it. He goes, he was beaten and he's tortured and just to make sure that he, until he was dead, then they shoved a Roman spear through his heart. And then they put him in a grave and they covered him up and they put a Roman garrison in front of him. And three days later, he came out, moved the stone and walked around and we saw him. By the way, how freaky, how, how unnerving would that be? Let I me mean, just think, I'm just gonna get out of the Bible mode for a minute. Just think about that. You go to a funeral last week and at the funeral, you see the guy that you knew him. You know, you look at the viewing, you, you, you watch the funeral, you watch him put him in the ground, you throw dirt on the coffin, you watch him get covered up. Then next week at Starbucks, he comes up to you and he's like, hey man, how you doing? That is unnerving. Paul said, it is unnerving and it changed everything about how I saw life. I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead and because of that, everything is different. Some of you, listen, to those who are struggling with finishing strong, he said, you gotta decide if you believe that and you gotta renew that vision in you because the problem, listen, with a lot of us is that we've never actually come to that conviction in the core of our hearts. You've never really kind of wrestled with, do I actually believe that? And if I do, what does that mean? You're just kind of going along because it's the thing to do. Um, I, I, there's a story I tell to our staff um, uh, that goes like, it's not a true story, I don't think, but it still illustrates. Um, you got a grandfather and a grandson sitting on um, his, the grandfather's porch just out in the middle of the country. And the granddad's got like 10 dogs. And um, the dogs are under the porch. And all of a sudden, one of the dogs kind of perks out, lets out a, a little bark, and takes out across the field. And then all other nine dogs, um, they all kind of hop up, they give out a bark, and they take off after it. And the grandfather says to the grandson, he said, let me tell you what's about to happen. In just about 10 minutes, one by one, all those last nine dogs are going to come back one by one with the tails out and the tail between their legs or their tongues out and their tails between their legs. And they're going to come back and they're going to take their spot back here under the porch and they're going to go back to sleep. And in about 10 minutes, they'll all be back. He says, in about 45 minutes, the first dog will come back and he's going to have the rabbit in his mouth. He said, you want to know the difference between the first dog and the nine dogs? He said, the first dog is the only one that actually saw the rabbit. All the others are just barking and yapping and running because somebody's excited. Um, the church in some ways is exactly like that. 
there are a bunch of people who are here and they're a part of the movement because they're like, oh, everybody's excited. Let me bark and yap along with everybody else. But you never actually make it because you've never seen the rabbit. The rabbit in this analogy is the conviction that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And when you see that rabbit, not even hell itself will get you to back away because you'll look forward and you'll see him at the end of the finish line and you'll say, if God turned Jesus' death into a resurrection, he's going to turn my sacrifices, he's going to turn my pain into resurrection victory also. So I'm in for the long haul and I'll keep going. So what, so what that means is some of you, listen, you've started to follow Jesus. All right, you, awesome. You started well in faith, now finish strong. Some of you men, you've gotten bored in, in leading your family and bored in, in, in serving in your job. Do not be, men, listen, please. Don't be one of these ridiculous guys who gets bored in his life in his 50s, buys a sports car, unbuttons his shirt down to his navel, which makes us all want to vomit, by the way, and then plays golf all the time. Finish in faith what you started in faith. Mothers, some of you are tired raising your kids. You, you gave up your career. You feel like to spend more time with them, and this chapter is hard, and it's unrewarding. Finish what you started in faith. Nothing, he says, will be wasted. Some of you made a multiply commitment, and I just want to challenge you. Do it step by step. Keep believing in the sacrifice. Stay faithful to the course, because if Jesus resurrected from the dead, not a, set, not a second of it is wasted. Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because your labor is not in vain, because Jesus sits on the throne. It's not how you start the race. It's how you finish. Number six, Paul says here at the end, I gave more than I took. I gave more than I took. Look at verse 33. I coveted. No one's silver or gold or apparel. No, I worked hard. In this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I want you to think with me for a minute. A man's last words are probably the thing that are most significant to him. Fair? It's what's most on his mind, the last thing he says. In the last speech that Paul gives to these people, the last thing he says in the last speech he gives is about generosity. Because Paul knows, listen, that what it really means to follow Jesus is to have a life that is defined by generosity. Because that's what defines Jesus' life. Everywhere you look in Jesus' life, you're going to see someone who is giving, not receiving. Even one of the best examples to me is what happened on the night before Jesus died. Well, what did Jesus do on the night before he died? He washed his disciples' feet. I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys. Let's just get this clear right now. Um, if I, God tells me i got to die for you tomorrow... If God says tomorrow you're going to die for the people of Summit Church, then the night before that, I'm going to be like, you know what? This is some me time, okay? I'm going to focus a little bit on me tonight because tomorrow's about you. But Jesus in the night before he died said, no, it's still not about me. It's I'm going to wash my disciples' feet because it is more blessed. Blessed is the word makarios, which means happy. It's just happier to live in a way where you're focused more on giving than you are receiving. Does that quality define your life? Let me start with your most basic relationships in your marriage. Is your marriage more about giving than receiving? Do you prioritize the preferences and comforts and, and, and dreams of your spouse more than you prioritize your own? In your friendships, are they more characterized by giving than receiving? In, in your relationship with your parents, is that, more, is that more characterized by giving than receiving? Um, how about in your career? And one of the things that we frequently ask at this church is, is your career. Is your career basically a tool that you use to get all you can? Or have you asked how your career might be used in a way that gives to the mission of God? Because to follow Jesus in your career doesn't mean you become a pastor necessarily. 
It just means you ask, how, what has my career been given to me for as a way of giving in multiplication? Um, in my little uh, uh, backstage area, I have two of my most favorite prized possessions that have been given to me over the years. Um, they're two pages of old Bibles. And when I say old, I mean like, like well, one of them is from the um, 14th century. Uh, it was from a Bible in England. Um, it was called the Chained Bible because it was, it's in Latin. It was chained to the pulpit in the churches in England because, you know, church leaders didn't want normal people reading the Bible. Never know where that leads. So um, they chained it there. And so I have a copy. It's called the Chain Bible, and I have it framed back there. Right beside that, I have a copy of a page out of the first English translation of the Bible by William Tyndall, who put it into the vernacular. And it's an amazing story. William Tyndall um, it was this priest who reads the Bible, basically gets saved, says everybody needs to know this. So he starts translating the Bible in English. Church leaders didn't like it, said, no, we chained the Bible for a reason. And so um, uh, they bring him up in court, and, and uh, William Tyndall says, they say, you better stop. And he says, well, I'm going to tell you, when I'm done, by God's grace, the plowboy in England is going to know more about the Bible than you corrupt priests do. Well, they didn't like that. So they um, strangled him and burned him at the stake. Uh, not one or the other. They had to do both. Uh, so they strangled him and burned him at the stake. Um, his last words that he gives as he's dying is, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, that's the part of the story I knew. I learned that one in seminary. What I didn't know was something I read in a book a while back that made the story even better. Um, there's a missing component in that story. And the missing component is a guy named Humphrey Monmouth. Tough name, great guy. Um, Humphrey Monmouth was a merchant, a very wealthy merchant who owned a fleet of ships. And what Monmouth did is he had been led to Christ by Tyndall. And he said, you know what? Not only can I finance the translation of this Bible and the publishing of it, I can use this fleet of merchant ships to get this Bible into all the corners of the English empire. Because he did that, when they burned William Tyndall at the stake, they were not able to destroy the Bible that he had translated. It was already out, and because of that, you got a copy of it sitting right in your hands. It goes back to William Tyndall's translation. There was a man at a particular time who understood that his career had been given to him by God in order to be able to be used for the mission of God. My question I want all of you to consider is how can your career be used for the mission of God? We put out in front of you things like, hey, maybe you can move on one of our church plants. Maybe you can use your career as a way of, of, of being a part of gospel proclamation. Maybe, maybe you can go to one of what we call our global cities initiative, which is where you go to one of these unreached places in the world and you live on your career and you tell people about Jesus who wouldn't otherwise hear. Maybe you've made a lot of money in your career. And praise God for that. God doesn't begrudge that at all. He gave you that ability, but maybe, maybe he gave you that ability to make money. Maybe it wasn't just so you could increase your standard of living. Maybe he gave it to you for the purpose of multiplication. Maybe you ought to say, in my career, it's more blessed to give than just to receive. Maybe you're entering retirement right now. Maybe you're entering retirement early. I don't know. Are you the kind of person who are going to retire and say, finally, I get to make it all about me. I've made it all, you know, all been about my kids and all been about saving money. Now I get to live at the beach and play golf and, you know, just do what I want to do. And it's all about me. When I hear a Christian say that, y'all, um, it, it breaks my heart because I'm like, have you been so long in the church and you still don't understand the gospel? Because the gospel is that if I am financially independent and I've achieved this place, then I'm just freer now to be able to, to live places where I can share the gospel more strategically. In this chapter, I want to give more than I receive. What, the, what you do with your money in retirement? Um, I talked to a really wealthy guy in our church, an older man who said, I thought this was awesome. He said, J.D., he said, my goal, again, he's very wealthy, my goal is for the last check I write on earth to bounce because I gave it all away. I, I told that to one of our pastors, and my, 
one of our pastors was like, oh, I'm way ahead of that guy. Um, I'm already, <laughs> already bouncing right and left right now. It's more blessed to give than to receive. This is the last thing Paul says to them. And it's arguably the most important question because it's the most fundamental question of discipleship. Do you look at your life as given to you to multiply because that's what it means to follow Jesus. So some of church, listen, there it is. That's Paul's philosophy of life. I'm gonna make sure my generation knows about Jesus. I'm gonna direct their attention toward Jesus, not me. I'm gonna invest deeply in God's body, the church. I'm gonna be faithful to do what Jesus has told me to do. I'm gonna finish strong and I'm gonna make sure that I gave more than I took. In this season, we have, have, have given you, in November, we give you a tool that helps you think through this process in one area of your life. Now, let, let me make sure you understand. This is not the only area of your life. There are other areas. We use other tools throughout the year to say, are you engaged in the mission of God? But in this season, we give you a tool to evaluate this area. In fact, I'd love for all of you, whether you're a part of our church or not, I'd love for all of you to take it out because I want to show you how we want to use this. Now, listen, I understand if you're a guest at our church and you're brand new, this is something that we do for people that are becoming a part of our church and this is their church. We say, listen, the point is not us trying to reach a financial goal. You understand that? The point is not trying to reach a financial goal. In fact, I say it, and I say it without apology. I said it last week. If this is really an obstacle for you and you feel like this is manipulation, I want you to become a disciple of Jesus, which means you become radically generous. And if you can't get over, you think I'm doing this because I'm trying to raise money, then um, I want you to apply what I'm saying by giving somewhere else. You give radically generously somewhere else. I'd, I'd rather you do that and become a disciple of Jesus than for you to use some excuse to keep from becoming a radically generous person. This is about, a the primary goal in this is 100% of Summit Church people get engaged in the mission. They don't sit on the sidelines, they get engaged in the mission. And so what we've given is one of three categories. 12 months ago, we went through this thing called Multiply, and 5,000 families in our church committed to be a part of it. 5,000 of them committed to be a part of this. And so we recognize that there's a bunch of you at one of our campuses that you weren't here 12 months ago. And so we want to give you a chance to come in at the halfway point and, and to make a 12-month commitment. So what we're talking about there is a, you're saying, this is what I want to, by faith, this is what I want to project, what I want to commit to in the next 12 months. Right? And by the way, some of you, weren't, you were here 12 months ago, but you didn't make a commitment. It's, if you didn't make a commitment last year, we'd love for you, if you're a part of this church, to, to join up with us. And we're inviting you to do that. Then you'll notice there's a couple of uh, boxes below that. And that's for those of you who did make a commitment last year. You turned in a card last year, you made a commitment. First thing we'd love you to do is just write again what that commitment was. And then check one of those two boxes. I'm either gonna confirm it. I'm gonna say I started it by faith and by God's grace, I'm gonna confirm it. You do that. Or there's a third one where you say, I wanna increase it. This is where my wife and I are. We, you know, just sensing that God has given us a greater heart for generosity, that God has, um, God has, has, has given us some ways in which he's blessed us. And we're like, God, yeah, we were making sacrifices last year, but we feel like we're going we're gonna to increase. And so writing that new number there on that line. And I can tell you that 100%, 100% of your pastoral team is doing this. Uh, we really, our goal is not, it's just, this is for the poorest to the richest, the youngest to the oldest, the brand new Christians to mature Christians. It's a way of saying we need to not just be on the sidelines, but, but these are the core things that core form the core of our life. And so we're going to be invested and we're going to be, we're going to be in the game. And we want to invite you to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a few moments here, a couple minutes um, for you to think and for you to pray, maybe pray with your spouse, if you're married or your family, and, th and then write. 
think and pray and write. And then one of our, our pastors at the end at our campus will come and they'll lead us into what, we, um, how we're, what we're gonna do with them next. But I'm gonna give you a couple moments just in silence um, to think and pray and write. And one of our pastors will come and, and they'll lead.